Well, good morning, church. Every time I sing that line, he will not delay, I stumble over it a little bit. Because sometimes it feels like delay, doesn't it? He will not delay according to his divine timetable. Whew, I don't like waiting. You? Got the waiting down, do you? All right, you can talk to me afterwards. And look at someone who had to do some waiting as we look at the life of Joseph. You are given a situation, Haddon Robin said. said. You are given a situation. What you are determines what you see. What you see determines what you do. You're given a situation. What you are determines what you see. What you see determines what you do. It's a story told of how centuries ago, the Pope decided that all the Jews had to leave Rome. And there was this great uproar from the Jewish community, and so the Pope made a deal that he would have a religious debate with any member of the Jewish community. The outcome of the debate would determine the fate of the Jews. The Jewish leaders were agonizing over selecting the wisest person for the debate when an old man who had spent his life as a floor sweeper came forward to represent the Jewish people at the debates. Well, they reluctantly agreed. This old man, this floor sweeper, was a man of few words. So he made this one request to the Pope, that on the day of the debate, neither of them would say a word. The Pope agreed. The day of the great debate finally came. The old man and the Pope sat opposite each other for several minutes, and finally, the Pope raised his hand and showed three fingers. The old man looked back at him and raised one finger. The Pope then waved his fingers in a circle around his head, and the old man responded by pointing to the ground. The Pope then pulled out a wafer and a glass of wine, and the old man pulled out an apple. The Pope then stood to his feet and said, I give up. This man's too good. The Jews can stay. The cardinals gathered all around the Pope, asking him, what in the world just happened? And the Pope said, well, first, I held up three fingers to represent the Trinity. He responded by holding up one finger to remind me there was one God. Then I waved my fingers to show him that God was all around us. And he responded by pointing to the ground, showing that God was also right here with us. I then pulled out the wafer and the wine to show that God absolves us from our sins he pulled out an apple to remind me of original sin. He had an answer for everything. Meanwhile, in the Jewish community, they all gathered around the old man to get his take on what happened. And he said, well, said the old man, first he said that the Jews have three days to leave. I told them not one of us was leaving. Then they told me the whole city would be cleared of Jews. I told them we were staying right here. And then asked the woman, I don't know, said the old man. He took out his lunch and I took out mine. <laughs> Same situation, different interpretations. That's perception. How do you interpret what you're going through? How do you interpret the events in your life? As Haddon Robinson said, you're given a situation. What you are determines what you see. What you see determines what you do. All right, with that, turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis chapter 37. So we continue in our story, in, our, in, in the true story and account of Joseph. And last week, we began a new sermon series on the life of Joseph. Now, I chose this study for two reasons. First of all, 
uh, and the man Joseph, who was far from perfect, we see a man whose faith in God triumphed over troubles and temptation. Joseph is an example of this truth. The person we become is largely dependent on how we view the things dealt to us in life. And that's our takeaway for this morning. So let me say it again. The person we become is largely dependent on how we view the things dealt to us in life. Joseph was not at the mercy of fate or chance, and neither are we. All of our days, including our disappointments in life, our heartaches, our trials, our failures, as well as our hopes and our desires are being worked out according to the providential care of God. And that's the second reason for this series. That our hearts are warmed and encouraged with the truth that God is not only aware of the events in your life, but he's working all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose, Romans 8, 28. And that's why I'm calling this series The Master's Design. Because as we look at the life of Joseph, there are many threads that seem dark on one side, yet in fact are coming together to the, according to the master's design. And last week, we saw the thread of a broken home. The thread of a broken home. And we looked inside this home, and we saw hatred, we saw jealousy, we saw favoritism, we saw a passive dad. We saw Joseph out in the fields working, I mean, supervising his brothers, and he came back with a bad report. And as we pointed out last week, bad report uh, very likely could mean false report or a lie mixed with truth. Well, whatever you think of that, one thing's for sure about Joseph. He was a tattletale and was not very appreciated by his older brothers. And to make matters worse, Joseph received a very expensive graduation gift from his dad. It was a, a multicolored robe of royalty. The brothers' hatred for Joseph escalated. It went from hating him to they couldn't even speak a kind word to him. They wouldn't even greet him. 17-year-old Joseph was either unaware of how bad things were, or as I would suggested last week, I think he was a little bit arrogant as he shared the dream he had of his brothers and even of his parents all bowing down to him. It was a dream that would be fulfilled 20 years or so from this moment, but the telling of the dream to his brothers made them hate him even more. And their hatred was rooted in jealousy. and It was like a, a volcano about to explode. And that's where we pick it up today as we see the thread of adversity. The thread of adversity. The person we become is largely dependent on how we view the things dealt to us in life. Now I need to go back to last week a little bit and, and first provide you with a setting. I want to remind you of the setting here as we pull back from the verses we looked at and spent more time on last week uh, so that we can get the context for this story. You might recall uh, from last week that Joseph's dad, Jacob, sends Joseph on a mission to find his brothers who were working 50 miles away uh, near Shechem. Now, might this be Jacob's last 
goodbye. See, we don't know that, that we don't know with that, with that goodbye to our spouse or that goodbye to our friend or goodbye to our child or goodbye to our parent if it might be the last one. My years of, of ministry, I've, I've spent those moments uh, shortly after with a loved one uh, following a person's death and heard the agony in the words, if I only knew that would have been the last time I saw him. If I only knew, I, I would give anything, I would often, I would give anything to have back my last conversation with her. So Jacob sends his favored son, not knowing that it would be 20 years before he would see him again. And Joseph arrives at Shechem when he happens to bump into this guy who happened to know the exact location of Joseph's brothers. And that, of course, is evidence of the providential care of God. God is working in all of this as he leads Joseph to his brothers in Dothan. He tells us that's where it goes in verse 17 of Genesis 37. Now, Dothan is another 10 miles from Shechem, so that would make it around 70 miles from home. But here's another piece of the puzzle of God's providence that we need to note here is that Dothan is on the caravan route. This caravan route that went from the Mediterranean eastward. It would then connect with the main caravan route that went from Syria, Damascus, all the way down to Egypt. Now just hang on to that. And if you know the story, you know where we're going with this. But hang on to that. We're going to be coming back to it in a moment. And so Joseph, he heads to Dothan, and he's going to meet up with his brothers. And I can only imagine, and I wish I kind of knew, what was going on in Joseph's mind as he approached his brothers. I mean, did he, did he think, you know, I wonder, I wonder if, they, if they're still not speaking to me. You know, I wonder if, if absence maybe made their hearts grow fonder. I wonder if they've moved on from my tattling and my sharing of dreams. I wonder what kind of reception I will get. And if you pretend you don't know the story, that's very likely he could be thinking that. Well, you probably do know the story, and you know this is far from a happy family reunion. So we come to the scheming. We come to the scheming. Look at me at verse 18. Verse 18. Genesis 37. But they, the brothers, saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Now, we're about to see the lingering effects of resentment. Resentment is a powerful emotion, is it not? I mean, it often hides behind our thoughts and actions. I mean, you don't always see it out in the open, but, but it's there below the waterline. It's there. It, it kind of whispers in our ear, remember what she did to you when? You, do you remember what he said about you when? Do you, you remember? Oh, the power of an unforgiving memory. What's the trigger for you? What triggers those resentful thoughts in your mind? Are you aware of what those triggers are that kind of get it all going for you? For the brothers, just the sight of Joseph, and I would say just the sight of that multicolored robe was a trigger. And they saw him in the distance, and verse 19 says, Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of these cisterns and say... 
that a ferocious animal devoured them, and then we will see what comes of his dreams. They figure, if they can get rid of the dreamer, then they'll get rid of the dream of all of them bowing down to him. But you see here what happens when resentment goes unchecked. There was this story long ago that appeared in Chicago Herald Examiner about a husband and a wife, and the article was entitled, Man Spites His Wife by Staying Blindfolded in Bed Seven Years. It's, it's a strange story. Strange story of Harry Havens of Indiana, who went to the bed and stayed there, apparently, for seven years with a blindfold over his eyes because he was angry and resentful at his wife. Havens was the kind of husband who liked to help around the house. He would hang pictures, he'd do the dishes and other things. And, and one time his wife scolded him for the way he was doing one of those tasks. And he resented it. He resented her. He's reported, as have said, all right, if that's the way you feel, I'm going to bed. I'm going to stay there the rest of my life. And I don't want to see you or anyone else again. Hence the blindfolds. And so he put a blindfold on and stayed in bed for seven years. He said one day he decided to get up when the bed started to feel uncomfortable seven years later. Now, I have a lot of questions about that story. So don't you. But those aside, ask yourself, is there any resentment in me? I might not go to that extreme of putting a blindfold and going to the bed for seven years and not talk to someone, but I'm avoiding that person. I have so much resentment there, and I, I want you to ask, why am I resentful? Ask yourself that question. Fill in the blank, I am resentful because. Don't leave it unaddressed. It will eat you up. As Max Locato said in his book, The Applause of Heaven, resentment is when you let your hurt become hate. Resentment is when you allow what is eating you to eat you up. Resentment is when you poke, stoke, feed, and fan the fire, stirring the flames and reliving the pain. And so the brothers spot this dreamer. They're feeding their resentment. It's eating them up, and they plot on how to get rid of him. And we already know by what happened in Genesis 34, when their sister was raped, that these guys were capable of murder. Sunday school teacher was discussing the Ten Commandments with their class of five and six-year-olds, and after explaining the commandment to honor thy father and thy mother, she asked the class, is there a commandment that teaches us how to treat our brothers and sisters? And without missing a beat, one little boy answered, yeah, thou shalt not kill. <laughs> if it gets that bad, you're in trouble. It's getting that bad for these brothers. They're ready to kill Joseph. And if it weren't for Reuben and stepping in, they would have killed him. And Reuben says, verse 21, let's not take his life. Don't shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the desert. But don't lay a hand on him, meaning kill him. And Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. Now, I believe Reuben here is only covering his own hide. As the oldest one in the family, he knows his head would roll if anything were to happen to Joseph, that he would be the one with blood on his hands being the oldest. That's what I think is going on here. And for Reuben, he could ill afford to lose some points with dad. 
There's this major skeleton in Reuben's closet with his dad by sleeping with one of his dad's concubines in Genesis 35, verse 22. So he didn't need any more trouble with dad. So verse 23 tells him, Joseph came to his brothers. They stripped him of his robe, the richly ornamented robe he was wearing. They took him and threw him into the cistern. Now the cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Now in a way, what they said earlier about being attacked by some ferocious animal, they're being attacked by ferocious animals. The brothers, they're beasts. And when it says here, they stripped him of his robe, it means they violently ripped off his robe. They didn't just say, can I have your coat, please? No, they ripped it off. Violently. It's interesting to me that they strip him of his robe before throwing him into the pit. They could have just tossed him in the pit, in it. No need to take the robe off first. But that robe represented the object of their disdain. It represented the special relationship Joseph had with his dad. Every time we see that stupid coat, it reminds us of that. They strip him of it. Throw him in the cistern. It's a cistern in that day, just to get the picture. It was dug out of the ground, which was solid rock. And this dugout cistern uh, was where they would store water. And some of these cisterns, it's estimated, could hold uh, uh, 250,000 gallons of water. This isn't just some little hole in the ground. They would range from 6 to 20 feet in depth. This particular cistern, at this time, there was no water in it. Good, good, good thing, or else Joseph would have drowned in it. But Joseph is in a pit. Know the feeling? Are you, are you in some financial pit and you can't seem to get out of it? Are you in some relational mess and it's a, a pit for you right now? You don't see any, any light at the end of that tunnel? I mean, are you in a pit and you just I can't seem to get out of it? I mean, can anything good come out of a pit? All right, we go to the schoolroom. We go from the setting, the scheming, to the schoolroom. And here's what we call a very low point for Joseph, literally. Joseph's in the pit, and I can just imagine Joseph calling out to them from the pit. Hey, Judah, Asher, Simeon, help me. Get me out of here. I won't tell on you anymore. And, I, and I'll keep my dreams to myself. Just get me out of here. We don't know what he might have yelled or if he said anything at all. I kind of get the sense he did say something because in a later chapter, in chapter 42, verse 21 of Genesis, the brothers recall this incident and they say this, we saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. So he's pleading, get me out of here. They would not listen. He is in distress. And what are the brothers doing while he's in distress? Eating lunch. Verse 25. As they sat down to eat their meal. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but there are times when I, when I just can't eat. 
There are things that are bothering me, things going on. I can't. Now, for some of you, nothing will stop you from eating. But for most of us, there are just those times we can't eat. Ah, I'm just, all this is going on. I can't eat right now. I'm not even hungry. If you can rip the coat off your 17-year-old brother, throw him into a deep hole in the ground, hear him pleading with you to save his life, and you can pull out your Subway sandwich and eat it, you've got a problem. You've got a major problem. Because it's pretty heartless. I mean, are they compassionate at all here? Are they not feeling anything? Very sad verse, verse 25. Very sad state of affairs that they are that callous. And as they eat their lunch, they're still scheming. Remember what I said earlier about the location of Dothan? It happens to be right near the caravan route. Now, God has this. He's weaving the thread of adversity to get Joseph to Egypt. Look at the middle of verse 25. They looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices and balm and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. And so Judah sees this. He gets the wheels turning in his head, and we come to the question. We come to the question in verse 26. Judah asks, what will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? In other words... Wait a minute, guys. Let's make some money out of this. What do you think? There's the question. And we go from the question in verse 26 to the suggestion in verse 27. Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. Let's not kill him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. Oh, that's sweet. Isn't that sweet of them? He's our own flesh and blood. I mean, we, we won't kill him. We'll just sell him. That's so nice of them. And is this really going to ease their conscience? Is that what they're after? And we go from the question to the suggestion and now to the action in verse 28. And so when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver, which, by the way, that amount was the price for a handicapped slave. That's what Joseph was worth to them. Sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites, who then took him to Egypt. And so you have the Ishmaelites and the Midianites, and sometimes you say, like, well, which group is it? Yes, it's both groups. They, they form this alliance together, and so if you give to one, you're given to the other, and they, they form this alliance so that it would add strength to their bargaining. And so the brothers sold Joseph to these merchants. Uh, they were all in agreement, well, except for Reuben. He wasn't around when they decided to do this, and he isn't too happy about what they did. And so verse 29, it says, When Reuben returned to the cistern in the pit that saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes, he went back to his brothers, and he said, The boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? Reuben isn't exactly an angel here. He isn't thinking about Joseph. At least that's my take. He's not going, oh, poor, poor Joseph. What do we do to him? No, no, no. It's poor, poor me. What am I going to do? My neck's on the line here. He's not thinking of Joseph. Joseph's gone. The other brothers sold him off. Now what? Cook up another scheme. See, that's, that's the problem with sin. You then have to cover it up by another sin, which is usually some form of, of lying. And often leads to a web of lies to keep it going. 
And so, if you have begun to weave this web of lies, listen, it will destroy your life. Be done with it. Some are living a lie. Be done with it. Come clean. You can stop your relationship to that sin at any point. And things get really complicated for the brothers. That's what sin does. It complicates things. And so you have hatred and you have jealousy and you have resentment. Make for a tangled web that leads from one problem to another. Verse 31 tells us the brothers take his robe. They kill a goat. They dip the robe in blood. They go back to tell dad um, that, that, that he's dead. Here, see what it is here. They deceive their dad by killing a goat. Interestingly. How did their dad deceive his dad? By killing a goat. Deception was indeed a family tradition. <laughs> like father, like sons. And Jacob, so they come back with this coat and they say, yeah, I know, it's a ferocious animal. Got him and here's the coat to prove it. So, but, and Jacob believes their story. And I'm kind of going here. <laughs> Jacob, can you put two and two together? I mean, don't you, doesn't it ever occur to you, Jacob, to connect some dots here? I mean, his sons had already proven that under the right circumstances they would commit murder, mass murder, when their, when their sister Dinah was raped. And, and he knew, he had to know of their hatred for Joseph. But you know, it never ceases to amaze me, though, how blind we can be at times as parents. Honestly. We can see certain behavior in our children and then we still believe them over what someone in authority tells us. Oh, no, my child would never do that. No, not my child. We can be blind. Jacob's blind here. The deceiver is deceived. Jacob's going to believe this for 20 years. And so Jacob weeps and weeps. He thinks his son is dead. He refuses even to be comforted, it says in verse 35. And the irony is that while Jacob is mourning the death of his favored son, Joseph is very much alive. Look at verse 36. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Now verse 36 here sets us up for the rest of the story in which despite all the twists and turns, God is at work in Joseph's life, preparing him for something to come. Let's not miss that. Joseph has been enrolled in God's schoolroom. Experience would be his teacher. And as has been said, experience is a tough teacher because it always gives the exam first and teaches the lesson afterward. Right? So what are the lessons that can be learned in the schoolroom of adversity from Joseph's life that we can apply to our lives? Well, first of all, two lessons here. Lesson number one, Joseph lost his family but not his faith. Joseph lost his family but not his faith. Joseph did not know how things were going to work out. He did not have Romans 8.28 on a note card or memorized. It wasn't even written in the Bible yet. He is living Romans 8. 28. And things seem to go from bad to worse for Joseph. I mean, you know the feeling. You may feel like the guy who was told, cheer up, things could be worse. So I cheered up and sure enough, things got worse. And that's how you feel. That's Joseph. 
I mean, he must have felt afraid, uncertain of what the future might hold. He must have felt alone. Joseph was alone when he was in the pit. Joseph was alone when he was riding off in the caravan to Egypt. He, he stood alone on the slave market waiting to be bought. He was alone in a foreign land. Now go with me to chapter 39 for a moment. We're going to spend some more time on this next week. But I want to show you how he goes from the pit to promotion and how important it is how Joseph handles this situation. Genesis 39 verse 1. Follow along with me. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt. Potiphar, an Egyptian who was one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him there. Verse 2, the Lord was with Joseph and he prospered. He lived in the house of his Egyptian master. When his master saw it, the Lord was with him and that the Lord gave him success in everything he did. Joseph found favor in his eyes and he became his attendant. Potiphar put him in charge of his household. He entrusted to his care everything he owned. From the time he put him in charge of his household and all that he owned, the Lord blessed the household of the Egyptian because of Joseph. The blessing of the Lord was on everything Potiphar had, both in the house and in the field. So he left in Joseph's care everything he had with Joseph in charge. He did not concern himself with anything except the food he ate. Now listen, for Joseph, this is not ideal. He didn't have the ideal circumstances. He didn't have the ideal boss. He didn't have the ideal location. But Joseph made the most of his situation. Many years ago, a young pastor entered a small meeting house in England knowing he would likely be arrested for preaching. And he was. He was taken from his church and his family, and for 12 years, he would uh, sleep on a straw mat. For 12 years, he would wake up away from his family and his four young children. For 12 years, he would wait for his release or execution. But in those 12 years, he began a book about a pilgrim named Christian. Pilgrim's progress became for over two centuries the best-selling book other than the Bible ever written in English language. John Bunyan was a man who made the most of a situation. How about you? How about me? You're given a situation. What you see determines what you, determines what you are, determines what you see. What you see determines what you do. And you may be looking at your situation right now and it isn't what you wanted. It's not the job you wanted. It isn't where you wanted to be this time in your life. It isn't what you thought you signed up for. It isn't ideal. Are you making the most of it? Am I? I mean, perhaps you were hoping to be married by now, or have kids by now, or be in a different job, live in a different place. Are you making the most of it, most of where you are at right now? Because if you're waiting for that ideal job, or that ideal place to live, or the ideal church to be a part of, or that ideal position before you decide to be a certain person, or get your stuff together, then you'll be nothing but restless, disappointed, joyless, and likely grumpy through your life. Don't wait for the ideal. Are you making the most of your tough situation right now? Or are you prepared for one if it comes in the future for you? The threat of adversity 
It's God's way of preparing us for something else. Joseph lost his family, but not his faith. Secondly, and I'll hit this quickly, he was stripped of his coat, but not his character. He was stripped of his coat, but not his character. What is tested here is his character. Character is intensely tested in the midst of adversity, right? And we read uh, Genesis 39, verse 2, and it says, The Lord is with Joseph. And we go, really? The Lord was with Joseph. Are you kidding me? He was the victim of his brother's violence. Without warning, he was stripped of his robe. He was thrown into a pit where he was in great distress, then sold to some slave traders, taken by caravan to a distant foreign land where he was set on a slave block and sold like a chief, chief, a cheap piece of merchandise. Lord was with Joseph? He finds himself in a country and a culture he didn't know surrounded. Uh, he didn't know, and he's surrounded by a language he didn't understand. God was with Joseph? It feels more like God abandoned him. You may know that feeling. Listen, God didn't protect him from the circumstances, but in the circumstances. And there is a marked difference. Not from, but in. God could have kept Joseph from the adversity. God could have done things differently in Joseph's life, but he chose these events to unfold in his life, to, to unfold in his life to work on some blemishes, perhaps, in his character. God's presence protected Joseph. We want to be protected from bad things happening. Well, that's pretty normal. There'd be something wrong with you if you wanted bad things to happen to you. <laughs> but can you embrace the presence of God in the crummy circumstances? with a thread of adversity. Because many things can be stripped from us, but no one, no one can take our character. No one. And if anyone would have had reason to feel sorry for himself, become embittered and have this pity party, it would be Joseph. And we see none of that. He's faithful where he is at. Because the person we become is largely dependent on how we view the things dealt to us in life. And Joseph's going to go from the pit to promotion. How will he do with this success? Will he be able to handle that success? We're going to come back to that next week. But Warren Worsby put it this way. If God puts something in my hand without first doing something in my heart, my character will lag behind my achievement, and that is the path to ruin. Is what you're going through right now God's way of doing something in your heart, in your character? Can you trust him with a threat of adversity now or when it comes? Can you accept that God's using that adversity to prepare you for something else? Corey Temboom reflected on her suffering in a woman's concentration camp. There's a lot of stories that come out of uh, her life. Amazing testimony of God's faithfulness. And she wrote these words, I'm sure you've heard them, Likely I've shared them. She said, My life is but a weaving between my Lord and me. I cannot choose the colors he worketh steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow, and I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttle cease to fly shall God unroll the canvas and explain the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver and the pattern he has planned. Do you know any dark threads? 
They, they, they kind of have a way of unraveling us if we're not careful. But there are any dark threads right now, past or present, that you need to give to the Lord and trust and say, you're going to do something with this. I'm trusting you with it today. Again, maybe. But I'm trusting you with it. Can you embrace what it is that God might have for you in the midst of that thread of adversity? Let's pray. God, we thank you for this example, a true account of one of your servants who did not have it easy. Sure, you could say some of it was self-inflicted, but that aside, it is all your working in his life with all the threats, all the threats to accomplish what you want to in your people in the big picture. Help us to see how faithful you are were to Joseph, how faithful you have been throughout the ages and how faithful you've been in our lives and how you continue to be that because that is who you are. Think about it already. We're going to sing about it again. How faithful you are even in the tough times of life. May we trust you with those to do what is best for us for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.